right. Yes, okay. This is Discussing Your Truth. I'm your host, Ian Hamilton Trottier. This is our first mobile broadcast from an undisclosed location. Am I in the United States? Am I in Florida? Where is this remote broadcast coming through to you? Yes, we've missed a couple weeks working on some technical issues with the equipment to get this streaming live to you. But let me repeat, this is Discussions of Truth, your weekly Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Standard talk show, online radio show, and podcast. Check me out host, Ian Trottier at I-N-T-R-O-T-T-I-E-R dot com. Stop Mass Media dot com. Or Impeach. Yes, Impeach Mass Media dot com. There you will find a magnificent graph of just how manipulated your media has become, and dramatically so over the course of the past three to four decades. What do I mean by that? I mean that the way that you receive your information via major media outlets, ABC, Fox News, NBC, CBS, CNN, less and less Hands are controlling the information that you receive through those outlets, per se. Yes, the power is being consolidated to those of a few. Is that infringing on your constitutional rights? I mean, what do you think? Do you ever wonder and ask yourself, do I have any constitutional rights? Because Paul Craig Roberts, former head economist, a leading economist under the Reagan administration, joined this program over a year ago, and he said these very words, quote, Ian, you and your listeners may not realize it, but you no longer have any constitutional rights. So what does that mean? Worth a look into. Okay, so the past couple weeks I've had to reschedule projected scheduled guests onto the program. Kevin Ships, a former CIA whistleblower, yes, he has agreed to come on to the program. Last week, Tom Hastings was scheduled. We've had to reschedule him. He is a program leader and head at the Oregon Peace Institute. And regarding the going-ons in Puerto Rico... The happenings, the controversial happenings, especially regarding their energy 
how they receive their power to turn on their lights at night. That's one of the items of controversy in Puerto Rico. Oh, gracias. Thank you to the hurricane that smashed that island to oblivion. And so then you have to ask yourself, whether whether as a force multiplier by the U.S. Air Force, can weather be manipulated? Oh, yes, absolutely. In fact, it is a weapon. It is a weapon, according to the United States Air Force. So what's going on in Puerto Rico? Dr. Jacqueline Font Guzman, professor of law and conflict studies and director in the negotiation and conflict resolution program in the Department of Interdisciplinary Studies at Creighton University, that would be in Nebraska, is a certified mediator and arbitrator by the Puerto Rico Supreme Court. She was a Fulbright scholar at Carlos III University School of Law in Spain. She's going to be rescheduled. Okay. So now that we at Winwood Radio have a mobile setup going, that means we can mo- we can operate and broadcast and we will be broadcasting this program weekly out of studio if needed. And this is the as I mentioned, re-mentioned, this is the first the inaugural out of studio out of studio broadcast and show and what a program it is for you joining here momentarily will be New York Times best-selling author that's three times over he's written over 25 books three of them are on the New York Times best-selling list Tom Hartman Talkers Magazine ranks Tom as the number one progressive talk show host in America with the cumulative audience of 6.5 million listeners for nine years he also hosted an evening TV program that was first carried out by Free Speech TV and later picked up by RT TV out of Washington, D.C., separated from RT in 2017. So, you've tuned in to Discussion of Truth on Winwood Radio. I am your weekly host, Ian Trottier. I'll be right back. You can follow me on Instagram, by the way. Follow me on Instagram. Follow me on Twitter. That's I-A-N-T-R-O-T-T-I-E-R. And I shall return momentarily with... Tom Hartman. Thanks. 
Okay, and this is Winwood Radio. Discuss your truth coming at you remotely from an undisclosed location. We have with us today Tom Hartman. Tom, can you hear me? I hear you, Ian. How come we're sitting underneath this bridge in Brooklyn? <laughs> are you are you are you in are you Oh, in, I'm sorry. We're not supposed to tell people where we are. Okay. <laughs> Tom, <laughs> go ahead. No, I'm, I'm done. What's okay. on your mind? What is, <laughs> okay, so so Tom, you've written over 25 books, and three of them have become New York Times bestsellers. Let, let's start with there. Tell the audience a little bit about about that. And speaking of the Brooklyn Bridge, about, way. about writing books. Yeah, sure. Well, about about three of them hitting the New York Times bestsellers list. If I, unless I have my information. Oh, I, yeah, I, I think actually only one did, but but you know, I, others have been on a whole bunch of other bestseller lists. But uh, you know, yeah, I've, I've written a lot of books. I, I'm a hyperactive kid who grew up, <laughs> and I'm pretty good with language. So, uh, you know, they vary from uh, books on psychology and psychiatry to uh, ecology to politics to religion to uh, trying to think what else. Oh, and a couple of novels. So the hidden history of the Supreme Court and the betrayal of America. Tom, in your career, which uh, is has spanned a few decades now, uh, and, and again, correct me if, if I'm wrong, but uh, when was it at, 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 at your point in time, being an American, uh, born and raised, what was it, when was it and what was it that caught you and said, hey, there's something, there's something amiss here? In, in, in the U.S. There's something off. With regard to the U.S. in general or with regard to the Supreme Court? Well, in regards to the United States, I'm speaking, but you can you can you can hone in on both of those if you'd like if you'd like to tackle both of these separately. But let's. Well, you know, I, I, with regard to the United States, I mean, I, I was, uh, I think, 12 or 13 years old when my dad took me to a John Birch Society meeting. He and my dad and I used to sit and watch uh, William F. Buckley and Joe Pine on TV. This was back in the you know, early 60s. And, um, and, and talk politics. And I, you know, at the JBS meeting, I bought a copy. I was given a copy of uh, Ian Stormer's book, None Dare Call It Treason. And I read that maybe three times. And I was convinced that the State Department was filled with communists who were going to you know, destroy our country. And, um, uh, you know, and, and then over the next three or four years, I made a transition from that to being more of an anti-war progressive, uh, from, in fact, dad and I went door to door for Barry Goldwater, uh, in 64, right. I was 13 years old. So that was, uh, when I first became interested in politics and it's become a lifelong fascination with regard to the Supreme court. Um, you know, at the time that I was uh, gung-ho for Barry Goldwater, I was convinced that the court had gone way too far in the Brown versus Board of Education decision in 1954, uh, you know, which was within my lifetime. I was only three when it happened, but um, it was still relatively recent history in the 60s, early 60s. And uh, the John Birch Society had these uh, billboards all over the country. I think Fred Koch was financing them instead of Peter L. Warren because... Uh, oh my God! You know, uh, white kids should be forced to go to school with black kids, and uh, uh, so at that point, I thought, okay, something's something's funky with the Supreme Court. Um, 
and then when Roe happened, uh, Roe v. Wade in 73, um, it was probably, you know, at the time I thought, okay, you know, that's the Supreme Court doing its thing. But um, the follow-up decision to that, uh, I think it was called Casey versus Planned Parenthood, a few years later, uh, you know, defined the three trimesters uh, of a pregnancy and said, you know, here's what can happen in the first trimester, here's what can happen in the second trimester, here's what can happen in the third trimester. And, you know, I was a pretty good student of the Constitution and constitutional law as a kid. And uh, when that happened, I thought, wait a minute, these guys are making law. That is not in the purview of the Supreme Court. And then I kind of, you know, set it aside in the back of my head. And then in uh, around 2000, uh, maybe maybe it was 96 or 97, actually, Louise and I moved to Vermont uh, from Atlanta and bought a bought an old house there in the uh in the attic above the carriage house was a bunch of boxes of old, uh, you know, kind of badly water-stained books that somebody had left behind, including uh, a complete set of the writings of Thomas Jefferson. Wow. First time they'd ever been published. It was 1909. It was a 20-volume set. And I had sold a, a business, an ad agency down in Atlanta. We were retired. And, and so I spent the next year reading those books. And uh, when I got into the point where Jefferson, uh, after the uh, Marbury versus Madison decision in 1803, when Jefferson was in the third year of his president or the second year of his presidency, and um, uh, John Marbury, or John Marshall, rather, the chief justice of the Supreme Court, who was Jefferson's hated third cousin. I mean, they were, of all the people on earth Jefferson hated, John Marshall was probably at the top of the list, which is why the night before John Adams had to leave the White House, he appointed John Marshall as Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. It was his screw you to Thomas Jefferson. Um, so anyhow, in, in, in 1803, in the Marbury versus Madison decision, uh, which I don't know what kind of time constraints we have here, I could describe it to you, but it's really not all that important, the details of it. But basically, what, what uh, Marshall said was, uh, as the Supreme Court uh, we get to decide what laws are constitutional and what laws are not, and therefore the ones that we decide are not constitutional, even though they were passed by the House, even though they were passed by the Senate, even though they were signed into law by the president, even, even though all those people are answerable to the people, we, the Supreme Court, get to actually decide what laws are on the books and what laws are not. And he's, you know, and, and in the Marbury decision, he struck down the Judiciary Act of 1780. John, go ahead. Say that again, Fascination has been with me since early 2000, much more closely than 
Okay, Tom, uh, we've got some type of a. Can can you hear me loud and clear? Ian, are you still there? Yeah, that's better. Okay, great. great. Somehow I lost. Somehow my uh, earbuds got disconnected. I'm not sure <laughs> when that happened. Uh, uh, yeah. Do you want me to do all that again? I don't know where I where I bailed out. Well, if you can, if for for listeners, if you can, in a nutshell, you you were talking about. Uh, the Supreme Court defining constitutional rule, uh, and you thread that into uh, uh, t- you know, Thomas Jefferson's nemesis. If you can kind of sum that up very briefly, uh, that's probably sure. going to con- uh, loosen the or tighten the connection. Sure. Yeah. In in eighteen oh three, in the Marbury versus Madison case, uh, John Marshall, the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, basically said that, uh, and up to this point, it had not been the case said that the Supreme Court gets to strike down laws that have been passed by Congress and signed by the president. And uh, Jefferson went nuts. He said, if under this doctrine, the, the, the Constitution has become a thing of wax in the hands of, of the judiciary. This is the very definition of, of uh, tyranny. Um, he, he, he was totally bonkers about it. And um, so, you know, I've been I've been watching the Supreme Court ever since having read that in uh, the collected works of Thomas Jefferson. So that's that's amazing. And you found this in the uh, attic of this uh, uh, home in uh, Vermont that you'd purchased. Tom, uh, have you been able to and, and this is something that that I like to uh, impress upon my listeners is that um, many of the same things that we're battling today in the country in regards to politics and government are, are some of the some of the very initial things set forth in the foundation. For instance, uh, you know, the, the Thomas Jefferson versus Alexander Hamilton feud over banking. And so if 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 we t- oh, it wasn't just banking, it was it was whether America would become a, a country dominated by business or dominated by by uh, what Jefferson referred to as yeoman and plowman, you know, farmers and workers. So forgive the interruption. No, 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 that's that's that, that's excellent, because because I, I'd like you to actually actually speak to that a little bit more. Um, if you would, you, you with your knowledge base to kind of expand upon that essential feud, because all we've done basically is compounded. Um, and 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 if 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 one steps back and looks at, of course, we've had four four presidents assassinated, but the two that the, the two that kind of stick out would be uh, Abe Lincoln and uh, JFK, and. And one way to interpret those assassinate, assassinations is that it, during both of those presidencies, um, uh, it, 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 not regarding Abe Lincoln, but certainly JFK, the Federal Reserve and alleviating uh, American economy off of that kind of, oh, wait, now, now we kind of get into what is the deep state and how does the deep state play into this kind of masked Federal Reserve? But again, compounding back to these are some of the same issues that Ham- uh, or Jefferson was opposed to in regards to Hamilton and kind of this international financing. It, it, is this striking a chord with you? And if it's so, can you compound on that and, 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 and go go off of, 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 of that a little bit? Well, Jefferson and Hamilton were in agreement that there would be a state. <laughs> you know, they, they, they were building a, a nation. Uh, you know, I think what 
what uh, the uh, when people are referring to the deep state, typically they're referring to one of two things. Either they're referring to uh, the permanent bureaucracy that's there, you know, regardless of who's president, who's in power, which party controls Congress, and all that kind of thing, uh, or they're referring to a conspiracy theory that suggests that that those people in the permanent bureaucracy actually have a, a particular political or, or uh, social agenda and that, and that they're working to promote that agenda. Um, that, none of those things were, I, I, to the best of my knowledge, even part of the discussion at the founding of the country. Um, the, the big difference between Hamilton and Jefferson, and they were highly opposed to each other, was that Hamilton was an advocate of uh, you know, what today we might call neoliberalism of, uh, you know, bowing down to the billionaires um, of, uh, you know, doing doing what business wants and needs and what rich people want and need first and foremost. And Jefferson was more a, a an advocate of doing, you know, the people's business, right. that all power should reside with the people and that we should be very suspicious when you know, billionaires start funding political campaigns or, I mean, there were billionaires back then. The first millionaire actually appeared in 1791. Um, these guys were not even rich. They were just, you know, some of them were uh, a little more wealthy than others. But, um, but you know, there was still this class war going on. Um, Hamilton wanted uh, a bank. He actually prevailed in that. Um, uh, Andrew Jackson killed the second incarnation of it and thus produced the largest and deepest and longest depression in the history of the United States. Um, uh, Jefferson didn't want the bank because he was concerned that Hamilton's vision of an industrialized America would be a bad thing. Uh, he wanted a country that was had an agricultural base rather than an industrial base. Um, he changed his tune on that quite substantially around 1800 when he, when, uh, 1801 when he, he himself became president and uh you know aligned himself more with hamilton so it's easy to cherry pick jefferson quotes because you know he he had such a long and productive life and during that time he actually uh, took a number of different positions his positions i mean you know in, in 1790 uh, excuse me 1772 he published a summary view of the rights of british americans which was a, an article a pamphlet about how to be a good british citizen in the united states the next year, the Boston Tea Party happened, and the year after that, um, you know, he started agitating for independence. And two years after that, he wrote the Declaration of Independence. Um, and then, you know, in the Declaration, it was a, a fairly radical document. And then, after the American Revolution, he changed some of his opinions about governance, and particularly after the failure of the Articles of Confederation, he became much more. Uh, he was never a Federalist, but he moved in that direction much farther because he had seen how this kind of libertarian structure of 13 states with basically a trade agreement that held them together, the Articles of Confederation, just didn't work. And um, so, you know, he was in favor of a federal government, uh, you know, which contradicts a lot of his earlier quotes. And and then, you know, when he became president, he, he uh, changed his opinions again. And then after he left the White House, if you read his writings, his correspondences with John Madison from, you know, 1823 to 1826 when he died, um, there was another change in his in his attitudes and opinions, but his thoughts on the Supreme Court really never changed. He thought that the Supreme Court in 1803 had risen up and seized a power, the power to strike down laws passed by Congress and signed by the president, 
that a power that was not given us in the Constitution. And I would add that with uh, the Roe decision, for example, um, and, and numerous others, in fact, I'd say the Heller decision is another example of this, where the Supreme Court actually writes law. And uh, that was certainly never envisioned by the founders, and in fact was explicitly in Federalist 78, 79, 81, 80, 81, and 82, uh, you know, Hamilton's writings, or Madison's writings, rather. Actually, most of that's Hamilton. Um, was explicitly saying, you know, the Supreme Court will be the least likely to injure. It'll be the weakest of all the branches. It, it can't override the power of the executive or the or the uh, uh, or the legislative. So, uh, uh, anyhow. So, so Tom, yeah, fast forward 2019, 2020. Uh, Supreme uh, term of the Supreme Court begins October 7th. Uh, your book, The Hidden History of the Supreme Court and the Portrayal of America, is a timely analysis of how the Supreme Court has filled beyond its constitutional powers. Who, in your opinion and your view, who does the Supreme Court, if anyone, who does it most benefit? Well, it's always, I mean, literally since uh, arguably 1803, uh, certainly since 1815 with the Dartmouth decision. The Supreme Court has, uh, with very few exceptions, uh, you know, there have been a few periods in in history when the court sided with average working people. But I'd say probably 90 percent of its entire history has been decided with the the powerful and the wealthy, the, the aristocrats, if you will. Um, and, yeah. And so and so, what does the average American, the average listener, those listening to this show, what can the people do about, uh, about the Supreme Court? Yeah. Well, I, I, you know, I think number one, um, get some sense of how how different it should be. I mean, you know, it's, yeah. um, you know, inform themselves about how the Supreme Court has has abused power for you know most most of its history. In my opinion, number two, you know, elect elect politicians, and this is principally the Senate and the White House, um, who will look for Supreme Court justices who are actually, um, uh, you know, reading, interpreting the law rather than, you know, for example, uh, Robert Bork came up with this uh, scam, basically, you know, a way that the Supreme Court could justify pretty much anything. And he called, uh, and, and in fact, specifically, explicitly, that's what he was looking for, was you know, ways to justify the decisions by the Supreme Court uh, without having to come up with a justification. And his theory was very much like the TV preachers, you know, who said that they, you know, like the guy who said, God wants you to send me money to buy a $54 million jet. Um, you know, beware of anybody who says they can read the mind of God. Well, similarly, uh, Robert Bork's idea was that um, if he was put on the court, and ultimately he wasn't, but Reagan had nominated him. If he was put on the court, he would be able to read the minds of the founders, that he uh, uniquely understood the original intention of the founders when they wrote the Constitution, because he was just so smart, uh, and maybe he had some kind of psychic ability. And this now, you know, this is picked up by Scalia and Thomas and put on steroids, and there have been numerous decisions now where, uh, Heller in particular, where they've claimed that you know, this, this originalism or this uh, original intent theory uh, gave them insights without having to back anything up, you know, or, or just with a, 
with purely cosmetic stuff, like in Heller, where they just quote some some old papers that had nothing to do with anybody who was in the legislature or anybody who was in Congress or anything. And, uh, you know, realize what a scam it is. So you're you're taking some nice shots at the Supreme Court. Have you uh, had any commentary from any of the justices regarding uh, regarding your, your stance or your views? They don't. They they never comment on things like that. You know that's, that's not going to happen. Yeah, uh, Tom, tell us a little bit more about uh, about your, your you've got a daily program, uh, and uh, tell us a little bit more about some of the some of the some of the concerns you have uh, for 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 the country and uh, the various directions that it's going. Well, yeah, I, I do a radio show three hours a day, five days a week. It's also simulcast as TV on Free Speech TV and. And, and then, you know, everywhere on the Internet, Facebook and YouTube and all that kind of stuff. And, and we're on radio stations all over the country and on Sirius XM. And, and I think, the, frankly, the biggest, the biggest challenge that we face is one that was caused by the Supreme Court. Um, in 1976, up until 1976, from the, from the days of George Washington's presidency until 1976, the uh, absolute opinion of the legislature, the executive, and, and the Supreme Court was that uh, money was, uh, you know, a, a, a representation of, of wealth or value, and as such could be regulated by law, and um, regardless of how it was used. In other words, we could, you know, we could uh, uh, put constraints on commercial transactions. We could, you know, have laws against fraud. Uh, you know, we could tax, we could, you know, whatever. Yeah. But in, in 1976, uh, but, but speech, on the other hand, was a unique thing, that when somebody spoke, whether it was the written word, the spoken word, uh, the, uh, you know, laws in radio or television, or whether it was, uh, you know, a person just standing on the street corner, sure. that the, the right of free speech was, was pretty uh, inviolable. It, you know, you couldn't violate it. And... Um, and in 76, in a decision called Buckley versus Vallejo, the Supreme Court ruled that that First Amendment right of free speech extended to money, that that money was speech. That uh, So, uh, you know, if somebody had a million dollars, they had a million times more speech than somebody had a one dollar. And in and, and doing so, they blew up a whole bunch of uh, campaign finance laws that went all the way back to the Tillman Act that uh, Republican President Teddy Roosevelt worked so hard to get passed in 1907. Uh, that made it a, f- a federal felony to give money for any corporation to give money for any to any uh, candidate for federal office. Um, it had been in the books all that time. Uh, they blew, and, and it blew up all the the campaign finance reforms um, that you know largely were promoted by Republicans in the wake of the Nixon scandals during the Jerry Ford administration, and that Jerry Ford had enthusiastically signed. And then two years later, in uh, First National Bank versus Bellotti, the Supreme Court said, oh, by the way, this doesn't just apply to rich people. It also applies to corporations because they're, they're people too. And so they have access to the First Amendment. So not only do they have free speech rights, wow. but um, they can use money on an unlimited basis to fulfill their speech. And then this, they doubled down on this in October 2010 with Citizens United. And then in 2013, uh, there's still one little piece left intact, which was that an individual billionaire corporation could not own more than a majority of all the members of Congress, which I think is like something like 213 or whatever. 
And uh, they said in the McCutcheon decision, they said there's no limit to the number of politicians you can own. And, uh, you know, so you're seeing that now in, in, uh, in, in the world of politics where, for example, you literally can't find a Republican politician who will acknowledge climate science or who will defy the NRA because the fossil fuel billionaires, the Koch brothers and their buddies, um, basically own all those politicians and the ones that they don't own, the NRA owns or they co-own them. This is all made possible by the Supreme Court, and it's something that, you know, regardless of your position on global warming or guns, it's something that I think all of us uh, across the political spectrum can agree is insane. Yeah, yeah, and and so you're you're, you're it, explain this a little more clearly. Free speech, in regards to the Supreme Court, can be speech can be bought. Is that is that correct? Well, the way that they framed the argument is fascinating. If you go back and read the Buckley decision, they said that the the right of free speech includes the right to hear speech. And so if the law muffles the voice of the most well-informed actors in the in the political arena, yeah. then our right to hear their opinion is diminished. And because businesses and wealthy people understand uh, money and business better than the average person, the average person wants to hear their voice, and these campaign finance laws were suppressing their voice. And you know, the bottom line is that what this has produced since '76, by and large, has been, uh, you know, a corporate and and mostly right-wing billionaire takeover. But you know, times change, and and I don't think that. As horrified as I am by you know the Koch brothers and and uh, you know big corporations like yeah. Monsanto taking over the public dialogue, I'm guessing that you know my my good friends on the right would be equally horrified if the day were to come when you had a, a democratic control of Congress and the White House and and you know the 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 then equivalent of you know the Koch brother on the left, you know George Soros or somebody. Uh, decided that they were going to basically control the political dialogue. It's just crazy that that uh, you know our political dialogue. I mean, this is complete. This even defies what Hamilton was in favor of. Mm-hmm. That our political dialogue and 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 the parameters of our political dialogue, the, what's referred to as the Overton window, you know, the the that the, you know the, the stuff that's considered not crazy. Um, that that political dialogue that's acceptable to the mainstream should be defined by billionaires and and corporations. Yeah, that's absurd. And, but, the, but that's what the Supreme Court gave us. And this is seventy six. So you say, you're saying this was uh, you didn't say Carter. Who, who who's this under? What administration? Uh, Nineteen seventy six is Jerry Ford. Ford, right? As I recall. So, uh, but it was but it was the Supreme Court that did it. You know, Jerry Ford had no say in the matter. He was actually in favor of most of the campaign finance reforms. He enthusiastically signed them into law and campaigned for them. But uh, what had happened was in nineteen seventy one. Lewis Powell, uh, who was a tobacco lawyer from Virginia, wrote this memo to his next door neighbor and best friend, Eugene Sindor, who was the chairman of the uh, president of the, uh, uh, the Chamber of Commerce, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, saying that um, business had been apolitical since well, forever, basically, since the 19, certainly since the 1920s, and um, that business was under attack. And in this memo, he cited Ralph Nader and you know pushing for seatbelt laws and gas tanks that don't blow up, and Rachel Carlson who was saying that who was pointing out that 
DDT in the environment was killing the birds, um, the bald eagle was almost extinct at that point because in the presence of DDT, birds' eggshells are so thin that they that they they the chicks the the chicks die before they hatch. And so she wrote a book called Silent Spring. You know what happens when there's no more birds. And um, Lewis Powell cited these two books and said, you know, American industry is under attack from these people, and we need to band together. We need to take over academia. We need to be going into the schools and, and, and changing the curriculum. We need, to, we need to take over the courts. We need to take over public opinion. We need to build think tanks um, and, and other vehicles of public opinion. Uh, we need to seize control of the media. We need to start our own television networks, and we need to build radio networks all across the country. You know, he had this multifaceted plan, and one piece of what he proposed in that memo in 1971, all of which, by the way, was adopted, by not just the Chamber of Commerce, but you know, a whole, you know, Richard Nolan Scaife and Joe Coors and, and the Koch brothers and a bunch of other uh, conservative billionaires. Um, but he also, you know, suggested that the, the Supreme Court should be changing the law to say that people of great wealth and corporations actually have the right to engage in political speech, um, not just the privilege. And uh, then the next year, Richard Nixon put him on the Supreme Court, and he was one. He was not the author of the '76 Buckley decision, but he was one of the ones that was arguing very strongly for it. And then two years later, in the First National Bank versus Bellotti decision, where they extended that logic from from rich people to corporations, uh, Lewis Paul was actually the author of that decision. So that's that, that was kind of the original sin in our lifetimes. Uh, you speak of Barry Goldwater and, and John Birch Society. Uh, Tom, are you familiar with uh, the work of Anthony Sutton, the Stanford Hoover Fellow? I'm not. Uh, how about uh, Charlotte Eisebet, uh, former uh, exec, uh, education head under Reagan? I negative. Not not well enough to to have any kind of a conversation about. Uh, yeah, it's fine. Uh, I can go ahead. Um, no, I, I, you know, as I knew uh, Reagan's um, Bill Bennett was Reagan's education secretary for a while. I debated him at the Heritage Foundation. It's been a lot of years, but oh, you did? Okay, um, um, I thought he, yeah, but I didn't know Sutton. Charlotte may have preceded Bill because she uh, she was she was let go. Um, sum up, sum up for us. We've got a few minutes left here, Tom. Sum up for for listeners your view of the state of media let's let's get back to free speech and and and, and just to get to get your thoughts and your comments on on the state of media uh, it, it, we can we can clump it together and say mass media but um because that's kind of a loaded question in a sense because we've got a lot of different dynamics going on here and and of course we're uh, we're streaming this online um so you thread that into to media then that kind of throws a, a little bit of a curveball but in your view um, where is the state of American media in, 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 in 2019, going into 2020? Well, on the, on the radio dial, uh, I, I think we've got a real problem. NPR basically has a monopoly, and um, th that national monopoly on, uh, in the center and on the left uh, pretty much crowds out you know, voices on the progressive left. And uh, you've got virtually all of the radio stations of any consequence in the United States now owned by four corporations, all of whom are explicitly conservative in their ex in their in their politics and their perspective. And so they will only carry uh, conservative programming. 
and uh, and and, you know some of them sort of middle of the road conservative, some of them you know way way to the right conservative, but but uh, but but in both cases these are essentially oligarchies, you know NPR or these four big corporations, and uh, the you know I started in radio in the late '60s in Lansing, Michigan, and there were five stations in Lansing, Michigan, and every single one of them was owned by a local uh, family or group of people. And now none of them are locally owned. Um, and uh, so we've got a pretty grim media landscape right now. Yeah. And, and what what can you say? Um, and, uh, what, what, can, what can you say about and we've, we've had former uh, Ray McGovern, for instance, is a former. Uh, he used to write daily memos to uh, Bush Senior. He was pretty high high level. Yeah, I know Ray. You know Ray. Um, and, and Ray yeah. Ray joined the program here. Discussion of truth, Winwood Radio. He, he joined us. Uh, it's been a, been over a year ago. And he says he says Ian, you know, you're you're basically programs like yours are basically the last the last frontier. You're the last kind of battlefront uh, for getting getting those who know what they're talking about, those who know the truth. Getting those voices heard, uh, you know, regardless of regardless of political affiliation, or I mean, Cynthia McKinney is another another one that's been on the program and and advocated for 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 this kind of independent online streaming, independent voice. Is 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 that how you see um, media and information being given to Americans? Or did you see that? As... Yeah, I think I think that that duopoly that I was talking about about a, you know a handful of corporations owning all the right wing stations, and and you know one public private corporation owning most of the so called left wing stations, um, uh, crowds out or blocks out um, a whole variety of voices that I think we need to be hearing and we need to be hearing them, uh, you know whether it's you being a conservative and me being a progressive uh, and having a conversation or whatever it may be, um, those dialogues and for that matter those monologues are important to have a vital and vibrant and healthy uh functioning republic uh you know in the context of a democracy or a democracy in the context of a republic and and uh the uh, bork was also the father of our modern day uh, reinterpretation of our antitrust laws and uh, when Reagan adopted Bork's worldview in 1981 and just stopped enforcing the Sherman Antitrust Act, we saw this explosion of giant corporate mergers uh, referred to as the M&A mania, you know, that mergers and acquisitions mania, which continues to this day. And so now in, in literally every industry you can think of, whether it's food or whether it's airlines or whether it's media or, you know, whether it's automaking or whether, you know, fill in the blanks, you know, I mean, even even agricultural products, they're all owned by three or four corporations that work hand in glove to, you know, to functionally be monopolies. And, and this is destroying, it's destroying diversity in our, in our cultural ecosystems. It's destroying diversity in our literal physical ecosystems and it's destroying diversity in our media ecosystems. And it's not a good thing. Incredibly well said. And no, yep. And no president, including the Democrats, you know, Clinton and Obama, has challenged that. They've all continued this well, neoliberal right. march to, to corporate rule that Reagan started. That's right. That's absolutely right. I totally, totally agree with that, Tom. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, Tom Hartman. Tom, for, 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 for some closing thoughts here, uh, give listeners uh, some closing thoughts and, and what they can look for from you and the Tom Hartman show in, in the near future. 
But you know, I think in this in this book, the the, uh, the hidden history of the Supreme Court, the betrayal of America, it's it's a real shocker to learn how the Supreme Court has risen up and taken power in the United States, and how now you've got this small organization funded by you know a, a small number of very very rich people, the Federalist Society, that's literally feeding dozens and dozens and dozens of these judicial nominees through uh, right now to create a court that for the next forty years will you know basically serve the interests of great wealth and corporate power. Um, this does not do any of us, conservative, liberal, or in between, doesn't do any of us uh, a service. It, 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 it simply entrenches uh, what you might call the deep state, what I would call the oligarchy in this country. And, and uh, you know, uh, we all need to be speaking out about it and educating ourselves, which is why I wrote the book. Excellent. Tom, thanks for joining Discuss Your Truth at Winwood Radio. We look forward to inviting you back on the program. Keep up the great work, and uh, we look forward to, uh, to, 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 to your future work. Thank you, Tom. Thank you. Thanks, Ian. Good talking with you. Ladies and gentlemen, Tom Hartman. Uh, you can find Tom's work at T-H-O-M-H-A-R-T-M-A-N-N.com. I'll return with some closing comments and thoughts right after this. out of Southern California, but did a lot of their recording in Northern California. Definitely a California band by inception. I've said this before on the program. I used to skateboard down Lombard Street on my butt listening to Metallica in my Sony Walkman. That was a few years ago. Times, times have changed, but not that much. Next week, coming at you again from an undisclosed area. And by the way, the Lindstroth Report? Yeah, we're waiting for that this month, aren't we? Now that we have worked through some technical snafus, if you will, to get this show mobile, I'll be bringing JP on to deliver some interesting things from his perspective Keep in mind, he's got a Ph.D. from Oxford. Discuss Your Truth is brought to you in part...
by an incredible manufacturer of, yes, soap. Soap's, soap's one of those basic things in life that if you don't have a good one, you don't stay as clean as you should. And clean hands are incredibly important for stopping the transfer of little viruses and bacterias that can cause you know your your now your your nose to 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 sneeze and and run okay so best natures is a company out of canada that uh that i've teamed up with and they support uh they support our our, our program and 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 i'm i want to i want to mention best natures uh you type in best natures cosmetics into your uh, web browser you'll, you'll you'll find you'll find them pure organic skincare products made by mother nature all right, and uh, and I want to mention another Canadian that uh, that that has joined the program, and I've been in touch with recently for some for, for some counsel. Uh, Paul Hellier, Paul Hellier is uh, he's he's in his nineties, and he just completed a birthday. Happy birthday, Paul! And uh, and he's the the highest ranking Canadian politician currently living, I believe, outside of. Prince Philip. I may have that wrong, but I think I may be on the money on that one. Okay, and speaking of Puerto Rico, and I will be uh, probably announcing a rescheduling date for Dr. Font Guzman. Uh, Speaking of Puerto Rico, uh, I've been working for close to two years because uh, that's basically right about the time I started this program. Uh, and, 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 and to, to, to backtrack and, 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 and understand how and why this program incepted. Um, I was studying the Zika virus in Miami. And more importantly, I was studying a controversial pesticide that was sprayed uh, known as Dibrom. The other trade name is, is Nalid. But that was being sprayed over us there in, in, in South Florida. And it was deemed illegal by the European Union. So it was prohibited to be used in, in the European Union. And Puerto Rico at the time had rejected a shipment of it. So as I began looking into, oh, why, why is this pesticide, pesticide so controversial? I was realizing, oh, there's there's some fingers in a couple different pies here, if you will. And those were the Rockefeller fingers. We just heard Tom talk about big mega corporations that control many aspects of our lives. Well, the Rockefellers are one of those. And we can assume, because the average American has no idea who the uh, members of the Federal Reserve are, but let's take a moment back, step back, and say, okay, you know what? The Rockefeller Foundation, or the Rockefeller family, or their corporations, one of the most wealthy in American history, if not the wealthiest. Okay, They donated the land the U.N. sits on. Right there at the base of Murray Hill in Manhattan. They donated that land. So how many of their fingers are pulling the strings of the way we live our life? Well, 
it just so happens that they own a patent. Yes, currently, Rockefeller Foundation owns the patent on the Zika virus. But what? Yeah. They own the patent to replicate and reproduce the Zika virus. So if they just if they own that one, which other ones do they own? They funded the science team to discover and research the Zika virus, which was found in a macabre monkey in the 1940s, Uganda Forest, Africa. Okay, so now let's go to the pesticide. Right, the Chevron Chemical Corporation engineered that pesticide in the 1950s. Well, we're the majority shareholders of the Chevron Chemical Corporations, nonetheless, than the Rockefellers. Okay, the Rockefeller Foundation. So from that inception began this program, Discussions of Truth. Of all of the information that is conveyed to you, and, 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 and let's take note here that this program began before Donald Trump got into office. And since he's been in office, fake news, deep state, but primarily fake news, has become a hashtag staple of his social media campaign, hasn't it? Unless I'm somehow misunderstanding. Okay, fake news, right? So... Does that sound like fake news to you? To say that Dibram and Nalid is safe for you? Why has it been banned in Europe? Well, okay, fake news does it, it fits the category depending on how you look at it. But it's important enough to, to dive into and research. This has been... Your weekly edition of Discussion to Truth. I'm the host, Ian Hamilton Trottier. And until next week, folks, I urge you, just as our most recent guest urged you, to raise your voice, talk, get it heard. And I sum that up in one little coined phrase. Well, I haven't coined it, but one little phrase. And that is... Until next week, be awesome.